0: Our second scripture reading is, in fact, the lectionary reading for the day. I'll continue in chapter 37 of Genesis. Listen for God's word. Joseph's brothers went to tend the father's flocks near Shechem. Israel said to Joseph, aren't your brothers tending the sheik near Shechem? Come, I'll send you to them. And he said, I'm ready. Jacob said to him, go and find out how your brothers are and how the flock is and report back to me. Jacob sent him from the Hebron Valley. When he approached Shechem, a man found him wandering the field and asked him, What are you looking for? Joseph said, I'm looking for my brothers. Tell me, where are they tending the sheep? The man said, They left here. I heard them saying, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. They saw Joseph in the distance, and when he got close to them, they plotted to kill him. The brothers said to each other, here comes the big dreamer, come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of the cisterns and we'll say a wild animal devoured him, then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard what they said, he saved them from him, telling them, let's not take his life. Reuben said to, him, said to them, don't spill his blood, throw him into the desert cistern, but don't lay a hand on him. He intended to save Joseph from them and take him back to their father. When Joseph reached his brothers, they stripped off Joseph's long robe and took him and threw him into the cistern, an empty cistern with no water in it. When they sat down to eat, they looked up and they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with camels carrying sweet resin, medicinal resin, and fragrant resin on their way to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what do we gain if we kill our brother and hide his blood? Come on, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. Let's not harm him because he's our brother. He is family. His brothers agreed. When some midnight traders passed by, they pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and they sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver, and they brought Joseph to Egypt. Here ends our reading. Will you pray with me? God, may your words be a light, a light unto our feet, and a lamp to illumine our pathways, that in so following you through these words, we may become closer to you, and closer to our Savior, Jesus Christ, whose name we pray. Amen. As Katie and I plotted the Dysfunctional Family series and considered this particular image of Joseph, she immediately found on YouTube a commercial for direct TV, which so parallels Joseph's plight. You may recall it because it was really very humorous, and I also found it to be incredibly annoying. The short commercial opens with a narrator describing a man who is pictured on the phone and on hold with cable for a very long time. And the narrator says, When you're on hold with cable, you get angry. And when you get angry, you need to let off steam. He immediately cuts to the man playing racquetball. And when you let off steam, you get injured. Immediately cuts to showing the man in a doctor's office getting a patch put on his eye. When you look tough, people want to know how tough. So it immediately then cuts to the man running down an alleyway with bullies chasing after him with a club. When you look tough, you end up in a a ditch. So it closes with, don't end up in a roadside ditch, switch from cable. I know, it's far-fetched, but this image really did remind us of Joseph, who could not seem to stop annoying his brothers and doing all of those kinds of things that led from one thing into another, such that he was thrown into a cistern and then sold off to Egypt. More importantly, though, as I dug into the narrative and all the scholarship around it, this commercial parallels why this novella about Joseph might have been written just as a commercial is an example of a story created to persuade you to believe something and to do something stringing together a series of events the joseph story is about far more than the danger of beautiful coats family triangles and the ishmaelites carrying bombs from gilead it is more than a saga of how the israelites left the promised land to venture into egypt it is in fact a story crafted to persuade you to believe something of God and of your relationship with God. In the 10th century before the Common Era, when Solomon reigned in Jerusalem and the Israelite people were quite comfortable in their intellectual achievements, the people were flexing their muscles and they felt very secure in their strength. And although this was 12 centuries ago, which is certainly a long time This would have been centuries before these events of Joseph and his brothers would have transpired. Yet this is when scholars believe this novella was written. During Solomon's reign, wisdom writers were discerning the order of creation. They were constructing the order of varying texts that we now know of in our Hebrew scripture. And most of all, they were attempting to restore faith in the mysteries of God. At the time, the people had a shared memory of the stories of creation, Abraham and his descendants. Abraham, who was the first to be blessed and to be a blessing in the covenant with God. In the 10th century, they also shared the memories of Egyptian slavery and the exodus from bondage. From these events emerged the sacraments that they practiced and the laws and commandments which governed their lives. But missing between these two big narratives is an account of How did the Israelites get from the Promised Land into being in bondage and slavery? How did they get to being ruled by Pharaoh? Scholars believe the style of Hebrew writing, the tone, it's such a cohesive narrative framework and more importantly, the embedded theologies all argue for something other than pure history. Besides, there's nothing in Egyptian history that ever claims that there was a Joseph in Pharaoh's court. I know I'm letting my history geek come out right now, but it's very interesting when you read about how these stories are created, but more importantly, why they are created. Rather than get caught up in questioning the truth of the events, if the novella was constructed hundreds of years after the fact, or if the events are an accurate account, what's more intriguing are the truths that are embedded in the story which impact our lives today, We have as much to learn from this narrative as our ancient Israelite family had to learn in the 10th century. So, bear with me. Let's begin with us. We're sophisticated. We possess technologies, economic stability, resources, and culture as never before. We have accumulated knowledge and power and perhaps security. We can keep God in an ethereal realm and presume that God is not involved in human affairs. In our hectic lives, so often we forget about God. Although on a daily basis we're also confronted with events from the New York Times or CNN or Chicago Tribune, you take your choice. All of the human tragedies are presented to us. People are killing each other in Gaza and Israel, in Afghanistan, Iraq and Ukraine, and unfortunately always in Chicago. These are all tragedies created by human life. Then there are the mudslides, the droughts, the hurricanes, all natural disasters. I'm not sure where Ebola fits on the list between human or natural disasters, but it's a tragedy of frightening proportions. One can only ask, where is God with all of these sorrows? Does faith even matter amidst flexing our power? And how can our cycles of hatred ever end? This is one of the challenges the writers in the 10th century were trying to address, more so than the minor aspects of bridging the memories of how we got from the promised land to Egypt. So think of what I read. How many times did we hear that the brothers hated Joseph? They hated him for telling their father unflattering things. Now, Tattling is not typical of a teenager, so this might have been a persistent problem. They hated him also for the preference, and it was more than a preference. It was the flagrant way that Jacob favored the son over all others. Joseph's mother, Rachel, had been Jacob's beloved wife, and their mothers were absolutely not. This disadvantage could never be overcome. They hated him for being given an extraordinary coat and for his dream of foreseeing a day when they would, he would rule over them. They hated him for his name, Joseph, which means add, or added later in life, and later understood to be the one added to save the family. Jacob dotes on him because this son is a sign that God's blessing and the promise of abundance were still alive in his life and in his body. This hatred was born of a deep-seated emotion in which each of these incidents provoked. This emotion was fear. They they were afraid of what they were lacking, and that what they offered their father would never suffice. They were afraid of how his presence would disrupt their privileged position as elder sons. Think of how fear of not being good enough causes animosity. Consider the fear that you might have when what is really good about you is not valued by others. Fear created triangles in this big family between Joseph, his father, and his brother. Known in family therapy as triangulation, triangles are often at the heart of very dysfunctional families, and they become the source of never-ending attempts at domination, belittling, and they are often the cause for very obscured or non-existent communication. One person seems to be loved too much, one person loves too much, and others are loved way too little. When we get to see this from a distance, it's so sad, particularly knowing that love comes from God in never-ending streams that never run dry. There is never a risk of loving too greatly. Think of how many times you've witnessed a triangle or been involved in one. It may be that a child becomes a pawn played between two quarreling parents, Or best, friends divide when one develops a relationship with another friend. These relationships are not the only source of what we're afraid of. We develop fears around money, faith, health, jobs, and love. The fear of losing can become toxic. When we live in fear, we lose our ability to see. It's as though we have a lens that not only clouds our vision... But fear limits our ability to see only to the end of our nose. The fear of failing in relationships keeps us from being intimate and vulnerable. And the fear of defeat at work keeps us from being animated and creative. Fear defines how we show up in the world, and it can be the mask that hides all of us that is good and honest and unique. In C.S. Lewis's Screwtape's letters, Screwtape, writes to Wormwood, and I quote, Hatred is often the compensation by which a frightened man reimburses himself for the miseries of fear. The more he fears, the more he will hate. Fear is played out as hatred, and we can see it as bullying. The darkest fear of all, the fear that has the power to not only shape life for death-dealing, but also to distort an entire community, is the fear that lurks between the Beneath the pretense of power and privilege, the fear which crouches behind the doorways of prejudice and preys upon the very least of us. Hatred and fear is what closes doors. Now, we were blessed to have the gifts of Tamron and Steve, as well as the freedom to lift up a Broadway song, Close Every Door, as a part of worship. This was not entertainment. The lyrics of this song gave Joseph a voice that drives to the theological heart of this story. Though tragedy befalls him and people tried to kill him for his dreams, three times we heard Tam sing the refrain, I know the answers lie far from this world. The song reminds us Joseph was willing to withstand any trial and Joseph was always confident in God's abiding presence. Joseph had been banished from his family for the way his dreams threatened them. We heard only one of a series of dreams, and we didn't hear about all of Joseph's abilities to interpret dreams. These dreams are very different than the dreams of Jacob and earlier, in which God speaks. But in these dreams, it's part of a long arc of a narrative that are consistent reminders of God's willingness to uphold the covenant made with Abraham, a covenant that's renewed in every generation. The Joseph narrative bridges the gap in our faith history, but more so it confronts the hubris of those residents in the 10th century before the common era who, as Walter Brueggemann claims, thought they knew so much and were doing so well and doing so much competently, their power persuaded them, they no longer needed to trust in God. It took a chain of events, some of them calamities in the story, to shake their sophisticated sense of self-sufficiency and realize they too need the continued, never-ending care of God. This biblical truth in the story names the tension between relying upon our own powers and thinking our human capacity is sufficient versus remaining faithful in God. If you think you have the power to subdue enemies, those whom you fear and hate, and those whom hate and fear you, who really needs God? If you think your ability to protect yourself from natural disasters is sufficient, who needs God? And who needs to be distracted by a God who claims to love and number each hair on your head when you're doing just fine? Besides, who would want a God that's invested in the daily details of life when we'd really rather not have some of our little sins or petty grievances noticed? A God who is up there and of another realm is actually much easier to live with when we're doing just fine. But we can never amass sufficient power to ever be free from our dreams. We need a God who is intimately involved in our daily lives, who continues to uphold the long-ago promises, and is the only power great enough to bring new life out of the disasters we live through and the disasters we create. Now, trusting in the scholarship of Blair Moni, a retired Presbyterian pastor, he claims that if you begin at the beginning of Genesis and count page by page through all of Scripture, you will find 365 instances of God communicating to us, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. It comes to us through angels and through bushes and through prophets and most of all through Jesus Christ. We're repeatedly told, do not be afraid. When we become aware of and believe that God is with us each day and for all our days, We do not need to be afraid. The ancestors living in the 10th century needed to be reminded they were part of the long arc and narrative beginning with Abraham's blessing. God always remains faithful. God redeems and saves us time and time again. And we too need to be reminded these blessings are for us. Families. Sometimes we can't seem to live with them. Our nuclear families, our ancestral families and those who we hate and fear that make it hard to live on this world, but who are still part of our extended family. And yet we can't seem to live without these families. Come back next week. Katie is going to clean up this mess that we've created with Joseph and his brothers. Joseph is leaving the promised land for Egypt and a life of slavery. The brothers have plotted to deceive their father by dipping Joseph's beautiful coat in the blood of an animal, causing lifelong grief for Jacob. But Joseph's story is not over, and it continues to inspire our story and our lives. In the meantime, we will be a blessing, and we will bless one another. Our closing hymn is, in fact, a blessing. It's one that we don't sing often. So Tam will sing the first and the third verses. It's a blessing that he's offering to you And you will respond in singing verses 2 and 4 and bless him and everyone else as well. Thanks be to God. Amen.